a lot of people just don't like work. They just don't like their job. And yet we spend so much time at it. And if we can bring just a little bit of insight and a little bit of intelligence to inform people and organizations how they could make work just a little bit more productive, a little bit more engaging, and just a better place to spend all of this time, then we will have gotten somewhere. Hello, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Before we get into the meat of the show today, I want to tell you about a fantastic new research report from the Digital Workplace Group about creating a successful integrated digital workplace. And the report is free to download. It describes the key approaches to drive benefits in creating an integrated digital workplace out of disparate applications and systems. And we've brought all of these together in a really fascinating report, which has great case studies in there, great insights. And if you'd like to get the report yourself, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com and go to the Insights tab and you'll find the report there. Or you can type into search engine Digital Workplace Group 5 Key Approaches and the report will be there for you now for the show. I'm delighted to be joined on the show today by Greg Carman. Greg is the Executive Vice President global commercial operations for a fascinating company called Humanize. They're based in uh, Boston and Greg is part of their global uh, outreach program and uh, commercial team. And I suppose uh, I'm going to ask Greg in a moment to describe the work of Humanize, but I'll, I'll sort of, in my t- mind, kind of describe it as the quantified workplace and I and I'm looking at a few of the questions that humanize ask which is is my organization dependent on a few individuals how engaged are my employees how do leaders behave differently how do my top teams collaborate differently and and one of the things that comes to mind because uh, these questions come up all the time but we never answer them with with data so I'm uh, delighted to have you on the show today Greg and, and, and maybe you can just start off by uh, just maybe describing your role and, and also what Humanize does. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me here. You know, what, uh, what I do is uh, I have uh, people all around the world that help our clients and our partners identify areas within the organization that can uh, benefit through measurement of how work is getting done and where it's getting done and actually realize that value. So actually implement the solution. Uh, so everybody in sales and marketing and working with our partners and also most importantly, working with our clients to activate the service and maintain the service over time. You know, if you think about what we do, you know, we fundamentally are offering a service that organizations have been looking for for decades, which is how can I measure how work gets done and how effectively work gets done in certain parts 
of our physical buildings. And, and that fundamental question has been one that we've just done the best we've, we could for decades. We'll ask managers how effective their team members are from working from home because we don't have any other data set. You know, we'll ask salespeople how often they talk with customers because we don't know how often they talk with customers and we take them at their word. And if we want to understand how to bring two teams together that haven't worked together before, we ask the managers, how should we do this? And then we try to measure things on a quarterly basis for how effective it is. We've just done the best we could. And we really had a breakthrough for how to do this on a uh, daily, insightful basis. So so when you say um, this is the way we have been doing it, you mean historically. You know, we've, we've, we've been asking, because I've always been thinking, you know, culture, everybody wants to change culture. Everybody wants to change behavior. And, and the question is, it's really hard to change something you can't actually define or understand. And, and, and so this has been a kind of constant frustration. So did humanize grow out of that story? And what's the sort of kind of gestation of the company? It's a great question. You know, I think it was uh, Peter Drucker that said uh, a long time ago that if you can't measure it, then you can't manage it. And that was speaking in terms of, you know, how to manage the operations of businesses all around the world. Uh, if you think about uh, our stories, over the last 11 years, we have been conducting research, research in labs, research in collaboration with our clients. So everything we do here is based in science first uh, before we, we go out to market with some commercial solution. So the science is based on the fact that there is a growing body of corporate-owned data that facilitates collaboration in the workplace. Some of this is virtual. The most obvious are you know, email and corporate instant messaging solutions like Skype mm-hmm. and Slack. But some are, are, are not as obvious, um, like embedded chat tools within other creative tools. But using all of that collaboration data that organizations have and understanding very, very little about it, but looking at it at large volumes, we can understand how work gets done. We can understand how effective two colleagues are collaborating. We can understand how effective teams are in a cohesive environment. And cohesion uh, in terms of the workplace is just a way of measuring collaboration amongst three or more people. We can understand how engaged managers are. For example, if I have 10 direct reports, how much time do I spend interacting with and working with all of my direct reports? Is it an equal amount of time? Or am I not giving the same amount of attention to everybody else? Mm. Now, those basic questions can then translate to big breakthroughs. Are we truly a diverse and inclusive workplace? Do we truly promote and impact healthy workloads with our team members? Are we actually collaborating? If my work relies on your work, am I actually collaborating with you to make sure that that's a seamless transfer? I suppose one thing that would be really um, useful to understand is so uh, how how do you do that? Because as you said, we've, we've been trying to understand who's working with who, um, one of the big issues is where, where are the blocks in an organization and, and, and how do you gain insight into that? Again, we've, we've done everything through 
years of scientific research. So what we thought we needed 11 years ago is not what we found to actually be needed. Mm. So what we do in order to understand how work gets done and where it gets done is we, we look for uh, anonymized paths of communication or data points that serve, serve as proxies for communication and the recency, frequency, and volume. So, for example, I can learn something if I have 20 Skype messages with a colleague in a 20-minute period compared to if I have 20 Skype messages with another colleague in a 20-day period. So the recency, frequency, and volume are indicative of something. And then when I look at that at scale across thousands, tens of thousands, millions of data points, then I can start to understand using artificial intelligence how that relates to measures of productivity or measures of risk or measures of employee engagement. Okay, so now that's 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 fascinating. And one of the, I suppose, one of the requirements um, that you that, that that that's there is, and I'm going to come back to this point about 11 years ago because there's a there's a question that's sort of come into my mind about it. But how do you know that that what you're recording is is accurate? Because obviously, you know, I mean, in my own company, we've got 80 people. We're a fully distributed organization globally and you know if we were thinking about well you know who's working most collaboratively i want to know that the data that we're getting is is something you can really put your foot on and 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 you know that is reliable you know we we go to great lengths with our clients um, to make sure that we are gathering the information um, that they've already verified uh, to be accurate but the other thing to note is that we are getting uh, for what I'll describe as integer value data from our clients. What is, sorry, what does that mean? And what's an integer? So we are not recording anything. Let me give you an example. Mm. I don't know if, 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 if my solution was active right now in our conversation, I don't know. I don't need to know, nor do I want to know that it's Paul and Greg having a conversation. I just know that it's two anonymized, 256-bit encrypted alphanumeric characters that are masked for my view. I don't know who the two people are, and I have no way to unlock that. The rest of the data stream indicates what type of media it is. This is a conversation, but it could, it could have been flagged that this was an email exchange or a Skype message, or a Slack phone call, or a Skype video call. So to give you an example of the media type, and if it was a conversation like it is right now, I would get four binary data sets. So four values of yes or no. The first one is, am I talking right now? The second one is, is my volume changing right now? The third one is, is the other person talking right now? And the fourth one is, is the other person's volume changing right now? That's it. By getting that level of information, so anonymized identifiers of unique individuals, followed by timestamps that indicate when things started and how long it occurred, and if there was another one that happened after that, 
a media type. Was this a call or some other media type? And four binary yes, no's on the behavior of the conversation. That gives me a lot to work with, but that's all I get. Mm. And what, what I mean, I suppose what I'm, one thing I'm thinking is, is that isn't it isn't it quite useful to know who's said who who's in communication with who? I mean, we can, we'll obviously get into the whole privacy data, etc. Because you know, it, it, um, so what you're describing is almost like a, a kind of meta view. You're you're tracking interactions. You're not tracking if you like, the person, the people behind it. But wouldn't it be useful if an organisation and all the people in it were agreeable for it to be uh, not anonymous? It may be for some organisations, but we're not interested in that. We think that the impact to an organisation in terms of productivity and risk and engagement with their teammates uh, has a significant value to be realised with organisations. And that's why we take uh, data privacy data confidentiality extremely seriously for two reasons. One, we think it's the right thing to do. And two, there's a tremendous amount of value for organizations to gain uh, from the insights that we're providing. The, the other thing to keep in mind, though, Paul, is when employees do consent to uh, participate in conversation analysis, which is, again, the data that I described earlier, then just like a Fitbit or a Nike Run app, the individual has the ability to see their own performance levels and only the individual. So I can understand as an individual, do I dominate conversations or do I listen? Do I talk equally with everybody on my team, regardless of gender, regardless of management status? Am I active or mobile throughout the day or am I sedate? And how does that compare versus my peers? So it becomes like a Fitbit for your career. If I'm a junior sales rep and I want to become a sales manager, well, how do I benchmark against sales managers based on my current behavior? Hmm. That's that's interesting because obviously, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about um, is that by you not, if you like, kind of getting into the who is doing this, it's, it's all anonymous. You're also avoiding some of the kind of points that, you know, there are some people who, who communicate and understand things better by, by talking. There are other people who learn through listening. There are some people who operate in a written kind of mode. There are other people who like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We, we're on scales of introversion to extroversion. So you're sort of avoiding all of that, almost quite distracting points about the, the, the human beings involved in it. You know, you, you make a great point. And it goes back to the earlier statement around being able to measure something. If, if we can measure it, then we can understand for the first time how we can approach teams differently based on what makes those teams most productive or engaged or least risky. Hmm. And um, so, so what's the, the sort of technical part of this? You know, so take, take my own organization. We use a, a, a whole lot of tools, including ones you've mentioned. What's, what's the sort of additional piece of software that comes into the environment that 
enables human eyes to make the produce the data and metrics that it wants. So what we do is we have a data extract utility, and that gets deployed on our clients' premises, and our clients actually administer uh, that. So they they receive it, they download it. It's in their data center, and that extracts the data that I described previously. Uh, so a bunch of alphanumeric encrypted data uh, that's anonymized at the individual level and then a bunch of integer data uh, with timestamps and binary yes or no's uh, for some other data points. And the client controls the encryption keys and the masking, so what's called hashing and salting, the actual masking of that identity. Now, the client is the only one that possesses those administrative keys we never have access to them. So that garbled information, as it looks, then gets loaded through secure file transfer means uh, to an, an environment that we have in the cloud. And that is kept regionally uh, based on the jurisdiction of where our clients reside. So if it's a, uh, if it's a French organization, it's in a uh, 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 France domain uh, data center. If it's in the UK, UK, if it's in Montreal, it's in a Quebec domain data center, et cetera. And that data then is analyzed uh, in our uh, artificial intelligence machine learning uh, algorithm library. And then it's presented through a set of dashboards that can be accessed through logins, through, uh, you know, any leading browser that an organization might uh, might provide for their, mm-hmm. their employees to use. So this is... Um um, you know, fascinating. One of the things that you said in the question I wanted to come back to is you said 11 years ago when you started, the, 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 what you thought you needed to know was is different. What, what was it that you thought as an organization was important 11 years ago that you then realized wasn't? And and what's what was the change of focus? So our, our founders were actually working in the labs uh, at MIT and their hypothesis to start was that in order to understand how work gets done, we needed the content, the subject beneath the conversations. So they were testing a series of sensors. And these sensors were so large back at, back in that time that they were the size of a large pizza that would hang around a uh, participant's neck. Right. In, in a fashion that looked like a large pizza or a large type of signet. <laughs> yeah, that's going to catch on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It did. Nobody would ever do that. But they thought they needed all of the content. They thought that they needed all of the conversation. And here's the breakthrough. Just to, within a couple years, the data proved sufficient that the accuracy of understanding how work gets done was negligible compared to having all that data or not having much data at all, but having it at the large volumes. That was a big breakthrough. Now, just think about it from a, from a commercial standpoint. I could store exponentially more sets of data and pay for that storage and pay for that processing and potentially violate people's privacy and confidentiality. Or I could take scant amounts of information at very large volume sets and come up with the exact same level of accuracy. Hmm. I don't know if you've read Homo Deus, the um, follow-up to Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, 
but it's uh, the, the 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 strap line of it is um, a brief history of the future, and one of the um, trying to precede the book is really difficult. But one of the points he's making about this intelligent future, if you like, is that these aggregated sets of of data will know more about us than we know ourselves. And, you know, we obviously we're going to have to think all these issues through as a society. So one of the analogies is, is that, you know, once every four or five years you get to vote in a, an election. That's that's our version of where we've got democracy to at the moment. Now, what who you vote for can be based on a whole bunch of different things, including what the particular experience you have the day before or whether you get out of bed and feel a bit grumpy, etc., etc. Whereas if actually AI was observing us, whether we think this is a good thing or a bad thing, it would understand actually what we want to do more than we would ourselves. And and he's really starting, he's really trying to get us to think about these really profound questions about our future. And it's sort of when you're, when you're talking about the fact that the, the, the large amounts of data uh, held anonymously actually have more power than the localized, if you like, personal data. It just sort of reminded me of that. Well, I'm not familiar with, uh, uh, with the work uh, from the book. We are very much of the opinion that a lot of people just don't like work. They just don't like their job. And yet we spend so much time at it. And if we can bring just a little bit of insight and a little bit of intelligence to inform people and organizations how they could make work just a little bit more productive, a little bit more engaging, and just a better place to spend all of this time, then we will have gotten somewhere. Now, it's a bit, it's a bit altruistic. But we believe that an overall vision that's lined up with that can be very commercially successful. Hmm. So just give me an example of, of that. Let, let's sort of talk through some, you know, a situation where somebody is in a situation where you, you say, that, you know, uh, they've got a job that they don't much enjoy uh, and, and how that new um, intelligence and, and feedback, if you like, could make that that work more rewarding let's look at two ends of this uh we have a, a manager with a team of eight people and we have eight teammates on that team the the team is made up of an equal amount of men and women and as a manager i know that i am being coached and trained to to promote a diverse and inclusive workplace but the data is showing me something else. It's showing that compared to my peers and compared to our company targets, I don't talk with all the women on my team equally with the conversations I have with men. And when I am engaged in conversations with women on my team, I dominate those conversations and don't listen as much as I do with men. I also don't invite the women to as many meetings on balance. And in a nutshell, the data is telling me as a manager that I am actually not following through on the overall objective to be a diverse and inclusive workplace. 
as a teammate, as a woman, for a woman on my team, how that impacts the quality and enjoyment of the workplace is probably visceral. I could be a great, nice person, but through my behavior, I'm not being inclusive. Hmm. And compared to my peers, I'm certainly not as good as the other managers. And compared to the targets for the company, I'm not achieving those. The way it's been measured in the past, quarterly surveys at best, annual reviews of promotions, employee retention and employee promotion. That's the best ways of measure in the past. Being able to do that through actual daily behavior measurement, where it's diagnostically and automatically measured, there's real value to that. Improve the real quality of life for both teammates and team leaders alike. Mm. So then as an individual on that team, you know, I can see that my then engagement, you know, again, along the lines of diverse, inclusive workplace, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed that it feels like I'm not getting invited to the meetings. I, I don't get a chance to talk as much when my manager meets with me. But being able to understand how I behave, how I engage in conversations, how I engage in meetings as an individual, and being able to understand how that compares to the rest of my peers, and being able to make modest changes to that, and being offered recommendations and insights for different behavioral things I can do to improve how I approach conversations, to improve how I engage in meetings. Again, coaching individuals, allowing systems to offer intelligence back to the user, which is where we're headed fast with technology today, as opposed to just using systems to record data or to engage with us in, in some fun way on the internet. Yeah. And I mean, and that's a, a, you know, fantastic example. Presumably that particular manager in that situation um, has got access directly to their own data because you, you, you said that they get access right. to their own data, but the, if you like at a broader organizational level, you don't know that that manager manages in that particular way, or you do? You don't, but what you are then able to see is systemic issues. Right, so, okay. Yeah, you can, you can see that, that meta-level mm. information and be able to see where do we have systemic issues. And when we implement something, how can we implement things incrementally? And if you think about this, you know, 30 years ago, uh, marketing campaigns were run very differently than they are today. Today, every marketing campaign is run with A-B testing. You know, you'll never see an e-commerce site roll out a new website without A-B testing different looks and feels to determine which is the most engaging and has the highest, you know, turnover from clicks to purchase. You just won't see that. But 30 years ago, marketing campaigns would just go out in big blast because they didn't have the data. Now they have the data and they can do A-B testing. Same thing is happening in our world where we're trying to impact the, the ability to measure the collaborative nature at work. So now as an organization, I could do A-B testing because I can measure this. I can measure this on a day-to-day -day basis. I can understand which program, say, in diversity and inclusion, is actually having the greatest effect and the greatest impact. And I can invest further in that program and roll it out broadly 
I can also understand when programs are not having an effect. But through A-B testing, I can limit it. Now I have the data for the first time. Yeah, and it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the you know, we and I've sort of worked through an era of performance reviews, 360-degree feedback, you know, and I was talking to somebody in a, a large professional services company um, recently, and, and he'd had a week of, of these painful annual performance appraisals, which which are, are, are a bit of a kind of, you know, a charade that everybody's going through. Um, and, uh, you know, over the course of a year, what an individual does, what they produce, their whole experience is is so much more detailed and again that and that manager's got to sit down with that particular individual and just sort of say so so how do you think it's been going this this year you know gene you know what 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 do we think and and it's really so subject to well subjectivity really so it's 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 fascinating in fact i had on the um podcast recently somebody uh who runs knowledge at, at nasa um, David Messer, and he said something fascinating to me, and it sort of relates to your your um, in, in a way what you're talking about, which is he said the younger people coming into NASA were a lot less interested in their own individual ego and and production. What they were interested in was team based collaboration, and so that they came in to the workplace expecting to collaborate. So I, I'm sort of thinking, you know. If somebody like NASA wants to improve collaboration, trying to understand where, if, if there's some sort of generational um, problem happening or something like that, and presumably, um, you know, this, do you call it the quantified workplace or is that just my, my term for it? We have referred to it as that, yes. What do you, what, what do you call the, the, the overall field? The overall field is people analytics, but it's, it's referred to by many names, the quantified mm. workplace, the future of work, social mm. physics, workplace physics. The, the actual terminology, I'm sure, will consolidate at some point in the future, but it all has a couple themes to it. One is the ability to measure, and the second is the ability to uh, impact our understanding for how people are, are, conduct, are collaborating in the workplace. And you, you think about the reference that you made before about the subjective nature of these annual reviews. You know, organizations want to do a better job and their team members want to be engaged more effectively. And if I look across the spectrum of some of our engagements right now, one of the common themes is having a diagnostic element to regular feedback loops between team members and and, and employers about what they're working on. There are some organizations that every month team members uh, have to fill out a subjective survey of how they spent their time. They have to do that in the form of hours. And when the organization adds up all the hours, it never adds up to the number of people hours that actually worked for the last month. And the ability to, to eliminate that work effort that employees spend six to seven hours on a month to improve the accuracy of it, improve the objectivity of it, it has a direct benefit to the individual, saving them time and headache, and to the organization, improving the measurement and objectivity 
and being able to offer improvements that will actually be based on real data. Hmm. Yeah, and it's it's clear from what you're saying that 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 uh, as an organization and in your approach, you you've placed an, an awful lot of attention on making sure that. This doesn't, if you like, invade people's privacy. There's all the, you know, ideas of Big Brother watching us and so on. Do, do the individuals in a company, the employees, do they do they have to agree for this to happen, or is it just part of, um, if you like, the kind of employee contract? So, it is part of the employee contract for any existing corporate-owned data, and. That means that it's for anything like corporate email or corporate instant messaging, it's part of that employee contract already. However, there are times when our clients want um, access to want access from sensor data and they don't have sensors or wearables already. So think of this in the form of a smart ID card. Uh, so everybody has in large organizations, they have ID cards to enter the building and some to enter different floors or different workspaces. Um, sometimes those ID cards have sensors in them, uh, sensors for lighting to understand if what the lighting's like for these employees, sensors for temperature, also Bluetooth sensors for location awareness uh, so that we can understand how the workspace is being used. There are times when organizations don't have that data. We offer those sorts of sensors or wearables. And in that case, it's a new data set that's not part of the existing employee agreement. So we have a, an employee consent form that we add on top of that employee agreement. And as you can imagine, um, it guarantees the employee's rights to confidentiality and privacy. It guarantees the list or types of data that we're collecting. And it guarantees that the employee is the only person who will ever have access to that data at an individual level. And that the organization will only have it at an anonymized, aggregated level. You know, it's interesting you started off with the um, the point about Peter Drucker and his influence. And, and I, it sort of strikes me we're sort of moving through a period where, you know, a lot of the approaches that, that worked in the industrial age are, are, are being kind of redesigned, really, for this digital renaissance that, that we're, we're living through. And I suppose just on a, on a sort of societal level, we're having to think through the balance between, you know, what we share and the value that we get back from sharing and, and you know, issues of what we want to kind of um, to protect. So, so just tell me what's, what's on the human eyes um, kind of roadmap? What, what, are you, what are you working on in the next, say, three to five years? Or maybe you haven't thought that far out. You know, our, our overall objective goes back to an earlier statement I made, which is to make the workplace uh, a better, more engaging, more satisfying experience. And as a result of that, for organizations to be more productive and more profitable and less risky. So we believe that if we can actually point to uh, individual employees that have a better experience at work because of the insights and the recommendations made and that organizations were more profitable as a result of it, that we've succeeded. So that means we're going to uh, take advantage of uh, other momentums that are occurring throughout uh, the tech environment. So 
as the Internet of Things explodes and there are sensors and wearables that become pervasive throughout the workplace and that organizations have possession of that data from those uh, Internet of Things devices, that we'll take advantage of that information because they serve as additional proxies for collaboration. We also believe in the fact that systems of intelligence should be offering recommendations back. So if you think about the last 20 years in technology, we have seen a lot of market value created amongst uh, technology companies to automate existing processes, to be more engaging in an e-commerce environment. We believe that we are part of a movement where a certain class of applications will use artificial intelligence and machine learning and massive data sets to inform a user of actions they may take to improve, in our case, productivity, engagement, or risk profile. And moving along that direction, we believe that there's a significant value for both teammates and team leaders and organizations as well. It's a big, by the way, that is a big computer science initiative to take on. And that is definitely a five-year-plus roadmap. It's not something that just happens overnight. Sure. You know, no, it's fascinating. And um, um, what, is, what, what aspects of your, your role in Humanize do you, do you most enjoy? I love the people I work with. I mean, you really get to work with some smart, energetic people that share this spirit of, we spend a lot of time at work. Wouldn't it be great to impact that even fractionally? for people in the workplace, especially at large companies. So it's the people I work with. It's the customers we get to work with. These are organizations that, you know, to the outside world, they look like just a brand. But internally, they're going through transformative struggles on their own to create a more collaborative, more open, more transparent environment for their team members, to be a more attractive place uh, for recruiting. Um, and to be a safe place for people to work and to collaborate and be creative and innovative. And all those challenges come at them and the ability to measure more data, to be able to inform them of ways to make improvements. Those conversations are just, it's a delight to be a part of them. It's a delight to have a seat at those tables. And um, are there any particular, I mean, I mentioned a book that I've been reading. Are there any particular books that do the rounds inside human eyes or uh, things that people share and say, look, you know, this is, this is so much uh, something we should all, all read? You know, we, uh, we, we talk a lot about The Alliance um, by Reid Hoffman and the, the Hard Things About Hard Things uh, mm. by Ben Horowitz. You know, it, and the reason for that is, in both cases, it's about dealing with the pragmatic reality of the workforce of the future or of creating businesses today. And it's that pragmatic approach and how can we address them and how can we address it transparently to either acknowledge the shortcomings of the current or past way and to embrace opportunities for change. We don't all have the right answers. We don't all have any answers in some cases, but being able to iterate and try different things and approach it that we're all humans and humans are everywhere. If we can do that, we think we're going to get somewhere. And those books reinforce that. 
Mm. Now that's that's great, and um, well, it's been fascinating, Greg, and um, I feel like I know an awful lot more out about what I'm now going to call people analytics because I I like that it's it's clearer. If I'm trying to explain this to my auntie, I think I could probably do it with people analytics. I I think I'd probably lose her at quantified workplace. So. Greg, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and it's it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranet and broader digital workplaces. This happens through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise and if you'd like to download our latest free to air research report five key approaches for a successful integrated digital workplace please just go to digitalworkplacegroup.com and go to the insights tab and you'll find the report there or just type into google digital workplace group five key approaches And the report is a fantastic summation of all you need to know in taking your disparate, would-be integrated digital workplace and turning it into something better. And as always with the Digital Workplace Group, it's got case studies and examples. Thank you for listening to Digital Workplace Impact and I look forward to welcoming you back to the show soon.